And we're live with JavaScript Air. Hello, everyone. My name is Kent C. Dodds, and I'm your host for this JavaScript broadcast podcast uh, that we have loved for the last 11 months or so. And um, unfortunately, I have an announcement to make. Um, I am sunsetting the show. Uh, that's right. I'm actually not going to be doing JavaScript Air um, after November 2nd. So sad, uh, sad day. But um, sometimes that's, you know, there are so many awesome things in this world that you can do, and uh, you have to prioritize them and stuff. Like, I'll, I'll just, um, before we get into our show, I'll explain a little bit about how this happened. So even a couple months ago, I was starting to think, oh, man, I'm just like taking on way too much stuff. And uh, JavaScript error is awesome, and I love it, but I just don't know if I have time to do it. And so I was like this close to, to stopping the show back in like August. Um, but I decided to keep going. Um, and then just the other day, um, I like I've been really falling behind on planning shows and stuff, and I was my my wife took the kids to a, a concert and I was at home with our baby, um, who was sleeping and so I was like sweet I can like wash the dishes really fast and then I can go work on this cool thing that I've been wanting to work on, and then I realized oh no I can't do that because I have to set up some stuff for JavaScript Air, and that was when I realized okay JavaScript Air as awesome as it is. Um, there are other things I'm I'm more interested in doing, and now it's become a chore, um, and that makes me sad. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, because of that, and because of, there are just so many other things that are awesome, and I want to I want to do, um, I I just don't have time to do the show anymore. Um, so, uh, this doesn't mean that the show will never happen again. Um, I'm going to keep the site up and everything. You can enjoy all of the the podcast, and maybe in a year or two or you know, even a couple months, I'll miss it, um, and and I'll start it back up again. Um, you you can hope, but uh, yeah, for now, November second will be the last show, and it's going to be an awesome one. Um, if you remember, our very first show was with Brendan Ike. We did a rerun of that just last week, I think, um, and it was an awesome show. And so I reached out to him and asked him, "Hey, Brendan, um, it would be kind of poetic if you were on for our last show." And so. He agreed to, to join us for our last show. It's called um, JavaScript and the Web Platform. Um, so we're going to be talking about just kind of basically what the show is all about um, with, uh, with the creator of the language. So um, anyway, that's a big announcement. If, if that's why you were watching, you can uh, tune out now. <laughs> just kidding. We're going to talk about async today. And so that's going to be awesome. So don't, uh, don't tune out. It's going to be awesome. So, Let's go ahead and uh, get into um, get into what we're going to be doing. I, I need to give a shout out to sponsors before we uh, get into the show because they are so great and um, they sponsor some of the, the great things about the show. They've been really supportive. So uh, first is Egghead.io, the show's premier sponsor. They have a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos. Check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and even Yarn. If you're into that Yarn package manager, Jameson Dance totally made a Yarn um, tutorial video um, like today. It's awesome. Um, Egghead.io is also the host of two free Redux courses from Dan Abramoff. Um, find them at egghead.io slash Redux. And then Frontend Masters is a recorded expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on Frontend topics. Check them out at frontendmasters.com. And TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers no notice them. And with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And WebStorm is a powerful JavaScript IDE. Give it a try 
for a more productive de uh, development with ES6, Angular, and React. Use the code JavaScript Air at checkout at jetbrains.com slash webstorm to get 20% off your webstorm personal subscription. And Trading Technologies is looking for passionate and inventive full-stack JavaScript developers who want to work on cutting-edge solutions in a collaborative and challenging environment. Go help them build the top choice for uh, platform for derivative traders. All right, sweet. So um, yeah, let's go ahead and introduce the, uh, oh, wait, actually, one other quick thing. If you have questions, go with the hashtag JSR question, um, and we will answer your questions at the end of the show. This includes questions about like why I'm uh, sunsetting the show if you want some clarification or something on that um, or, or have any questions. But like primarily, this is for questions for our guests about async uh, patterns. So good stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, we are going to have a show next week. I'm going to be at uh, Connect, uh, Connect Tech in um, Atlanta, Georgia. And that so our show is going to be at a little bit different time. Go to jsair.io slash calendar to subscribe to that so you can get it added to your calendar um, but and in your time zone. Um, but yeah, it's going to be great. Look forward to it. Um, and yeah, another on-site on, on conference show. Those are kind of fun. Um, and yeah, let's go ahead and introduce the people now. Uh, first, we have Peter Lyons. Hello. And Val Karpov. Hi, everyone. Thank you both for coming. Let's get an intro to each of you before we start into our chat. So Peter, why don't you go first? Hi, so my name is Peter Lyons. Um, I work as a, as a consultant helping companies succeed with Node.js. Um, and I guess the most likely channel that uh, the JavaScript Air listeners would know me is if they've done work with Node, it's very likely that they found some of my answers on Stack Overflow where I am currently the number two all-time answerer for the Node.js topic, and I've got about 1,600 answers posted there. Um, I also have a blog um, and am active in my local uh, uh, tech scene in terms of meetups and speaking and mentoring and that kind of stuff. Wow, man. Number two on Stack Overflow. That's like that's a big deal uh, for now. Yeah, formerly number one, but uh, dethroned sometime in the last year. <laughs> Still pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. The, um, from all the people you helped, um, I will thank them um, or thank you for them. <laughs> cool. Uh, and Val. Hi, everyone. My name is Val Karpov. I'm the backend lead at Booster Fuels, which is a small tech startup out in the Bay that does on-demand gas delivery in Texas and California. Um, I also blog at thecodebarbaria.com. Um, I've been you may have seen me as an active contributor to the MongoDB open source community for Node.js, most notably the Mongoose ODM. And I'm the author of two books, uh, Professional Angular JS, which is a guide to Angular 1, and the 8020 guide to ES 2015 generators from earlier this year. Aha, generators. That is applicable to today's conversation. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be talking about async patterns. Um, so I think like I always like to start things off to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and, and whatnot. Um, in particular, we're, we're talking about JavaScript and async. Um, can we just first start out with why async is even a thing? Like in, in the good old Java days, um, or, or like there's there's always going to be async, like you're hitting the disk and stuff. But like with, with Java, 
I would just like say, okay, go do this thing. And then when that thing was done, I could like the next line would have the result of that thing. Um, why, why are things different in JavaScript? Why, why do we need to think about patterns for asynchronous uh, stuff in JavaScript? Actually, sorry, let's take a step back. Let's answer that question in a second. Let's first answer the question of what is async? What, what are some things that we can do that, that result in, in async? What does async even mean? So I can take a stab at that. So I think async means um, uh, write, writing a program that can uh, start, start an operation and then continue to do other things while that operation happens um, in, the, in the background, per se, um, and, then, and then proceed with the results of that op operation later um, without uh, doing something other than just waiting. And I guess the, the way to, it's kind of easier to contrast it, I think, with synchronous programming, which is everything you do, you, all, you implicitly wait for it to complete, um, and then you proceed to the next thing. Um, and so asynchronous gives you the ability to, you know, start something and instead of just literally waiting there doing nothing uh, while it's happening, you can do something else um, in, in, while, while that, that is processing. And async is sort of the, the broad category and then different programming languages and environments have different uh, technical mechanisms that they, that they provide to the developer to allow that kind of um, behavior to happen in the programs. Yeah. In my mind, async is kind of similar to that. It's about uh, work while it's waiting for something else to happen that's not CPU oriented, like say a network call. You don't want the CPU to be spinning, waiting for the network call to come back while you while it can be doing other useful work. Cool. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, um, I I think like. If we thought about it in what you were saying, uh, Val, like the the CPU uh, just spinning, doing nothing while we're waiting for the network call to come back, like that would be like you could simulate that in JavaScript by having a while true loop, and uh, or or while some variable and only set that variable when that request is is finished or something like that, and that would like just not make sense. So there's actually a um, I, I think it would be really valuable for us to understand the event loop and how that works in JavaScript. Um, to like help us understand how the async stuff works in JavaScript specifically, anybody feel uh, comfortable like with words? <laughs> uh, I can certainly take a crack at it. Uh, I've I've explained it with written words on Stack Overflow, um, so you can find if if you uh, search for understanding the event loop um, in under the node area of Stack Overflow, I have an answer there that that uh, has gotten some a lot of upvotes, but. Uh, Basically, the whole mechanism is there's a queue of work to be done and JavaScript to be run, um, and the 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 environment being the browser or or Node um, sort of takes the first little bit of JavaScript that's ready to run, executes it, and because JavaScript is single threaded, that that's the only thing that can happen at that particular moment in time, um, and that JavaScript executes, and then. While it's executing, it can queue up other things, including network requests and, and doing I.O. And, and kind of asynchronous work to be done later. You can use set timeout. Um, but those things don't happen immediately. They just get added to the bottom of the queue. And once the little snippet of JavaScript that's running in this what's called a tick of the event loop, um, and a tick basically just means uh, a little bit of JavaScript that, that, can, that can run from start to finish. 
um, when that tick, when that JavaScript is done, there's nothing else to be done. That tick sort of completes, and the event loop mechanism goes back and says, "Okay, what's the next thing that I can do?" And that list can include um, JavaScript that's waiting to execute because of set timeout, as well as processing results of AJAX calls, like, "Oh, the server has responded to the AJAX get that you made for this resource, so I'm going to um, fire the event callback." for that AJAX request so that your JavaScript that is going to process the response, maybe take a JSON payload and update the UI, that's the next bit of code that's ready to execute. So I can pull that off the queue, run it, and then go back to the top of the loop. And that, that whole mechanism is really all there is. It just keeps doing that until there's nothing left to do. Um, and in the case of Node, that's how Node actually knows when it's time to exit. When you know, once that event queue, uh, that event loop queue is is drained, it goes, okay, program's done. I'm going to completely stop, and that's what it does. And if there's more work to be done, it it just keeps running. Great description. I have absolutely nothing to add to that. Way to go, Peter. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So. Um, so then we fire off these asynchronous operations like uh, a set timeout is a kind of a canonical example because it's the example you can uh, pull up in your browser and not have to like have any sort of database. Um, but what are some of the other operations that we do on a regular basis in the browser or in Node that um, do require uh, like an async operation? Database calls, HTTP requests. Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, event emitters, things like that. If you're using RxJs, these uh, all these patterns kind of tie into the event loop. Yeah, I think the uh, the browser input handling is a great example because that may be the That's most familiar one. to uh, front end developers. Is just if you add an event listener to a button, you're just saying, you know, when the user clicks this button, I want to run this little bit of code, and that's going to happen later, and it may happen more than once. Um, and so that that is just there. When when that click happens, the event uh, that event listener is is known to be listening for that. So that little function that you've added as your event handler just gets executed, and when it's done, it just goes back to the event loop, waiting. Maybe maybe the user's going to click the button again later. Um, so that's sort of the the canonical example, or I guess in my mind, the most straightforward example. Um, and when you get into Nodeland, you don't have you know mouse and keyboard and touch input that way. So the the backend folks think about uh, you know the file system and the network as um, the sort of most common uh, types of code that you need that that's going to trigger an async pattern. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think uh, a lot of people would be familiar with that, and and maybe even not realize that that's kind of an async thing. Um, I, I remember I had a friend in college, and I was still getting into JavaScript, and and so is he, um, um, and like he really really struggled with asynchronous um, code, like just looking at the code, like I, I'm creating this variable in this function here, uh, like why can't I use it here, or like. Um, you know, I'm I'm running this code. Like, why does this code run after this one or whatever? Because it's inside of an asynchronous callback or something. Um, so, what are some of the challenges that you've seen in uh, with beginners in um, asynchronous um, programming? And what can uh, can you do, or, or what's a good way to think about it to help us when we're like reading asynchronous code? Well, I think that what you just mentioned, I think, is the the absolute prototype prototypical example of 
the confusing part is when if you're writing synchronous code, the order that your code is in the file, top to bottom, is the order that it executes. Um, so line one executes first, and line two executes second, and line three executes third, and there's something very straightforward and easy to understand about that. And as soon as you have async, line seven might not execute until after line 20. Um, and I think that's the first, uh, first real big stumbling block and, and sort of mind exploder for a beginner is, oh, I'm, I'm defining this callback here. And inside the callback function are lines, you know, nine through 20, where I get the data out of the file. But those don't happen until the, the bottom of my program has run. And then later on, when that data is ready, it gets called. Um, I think that's sort of the, the biggest leap to first make if you've never done that kind of programming is to separate in your mind. The location of the code in my file is completely separate from when that code actually runs. And it might run more than once and it might run in different orders and in different uh, instances. Um, and once you understand that, then things start to make more sense. And one thing I've thought about on the tooling side is, you know, our tools don't really help with this very much, but I would love to see um, a syntax highlighting that doesn't just highlight the syntax of the JavaScript language, but actually takes a callback that's, that's in a nested function that's gonna execute in a different kick of the event loop and change the background color of that entire code block so that you can see like all of the code that's at the left side of my file is gonna run in tick one. And then any event handler or a callback or a promise, um, a promise handler function, those are gonna be you know, indented if, you're, if your code is well formatted and that code is gonna execute on a different tick. And if that code had a different background color, that would just make it really clear. Like this, this block isn't gonna happen at the same time as this other block that has a different background color. Yeah. I find um, I find what makes JavaScript so difficult is it really just like puts your feet to the fire in terms of concurrency from day one. Like say you're a beginner in Python, you're writing uh, you're writing single threaded code for like say you're going through a book, you don't even look at threads until chapter ten. And if you're gonna look at like you know event loop in Python like Tornado or something like that, that'll be like chapter twenty if at all. So it becomes like. It's something where you kind of, it's really baked deep into the language. And concurrency kind of comes as a first class citizen when you're writing Node, which is what makes it both very powerful, but also very difficult. Yeah, that's yeah, I remember. I definitely remember experience of having worked with uh, Node in JavaScript for several years and then have to having to briefly switch and do a little bit of coding in a Python class project where all my code is written in synchronous style. And I was just like, wow, this is so straightforward now. Like, I can just do a bunch of stuff to the database and then return a response. And it's only, it's very small in terms of lines of code and it's like really straightforward. Um, so part of me is like, wow, this is, this is really great. And then, but oh, there's another part of me that really agrees with, I think what was one of Ryan Dahl's um, initial thoughts about asynchronous programming is it, it's really not good to hide it from the programmer. You want to make it front and center about what is, code that runs right away and what is code that runs later. And so part of me is like, it's actually better to understand this, this call could block, it could take 10 milliseconds or it could take a second if the network is, is misbehaving and make it easy for you to, to code in a way that, um, you know, is more aware of the reality of, of what can happen. Yeah, I guess it just comes down to your use case. I mean, 
if you're uh, if you're writing like do some analytics from the database like yeah python and single threaded makes things a hell of a lot easier it makes a lot of sense but when you uh, but when you want to write a server that can handle thousands of requests concurrently well then you're going to have to start writing threads and i don't know about you guys i find threads very confusing i uh, i've spent more than my fair share of time debugging very strange race conditions in like java backends um android native android apps things like that and I find that you know even with callbacks, it's a lot easier to kind of reason about than uh, than having to worry about threads and locks. Mostly because, well, the virtue of JavaScript is that code in a callback will execute sequentially. You don't really have to worry about like you know halfway through a block of code, this uh, you're going to get a thread interrupt and you're going to have to oh this variable could change underneath you. Doesn't necessarily doesn't happen in JavaScript unless you have a callback and an async operation, which is pretty cool. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed, so I did a bunch of threaded Java uh, back in the mid-2000s. Um, and one thing I've noticed coding with, with callbacks in Node is, and I've never really been put to task to, to prove that this is true, but I'm reasonably confident that I can just examine visually Node-based code with callbacks, and I can spot errors just right away. They just stick out like a sore thumb. And I can tell you just by looking at code without having to run it, I don't need syntax highlighting. I don't need an IDE. I can just look at callback code and tell you if you have a mistake um, pretty reliably. Um, even when I was pretty good at multi-threaded Java code, I couldn't just look at a piece of code and see the synchronous keyword and be really confident like, oh, that synchronous is extraneous. You can remove that and the, and the program will behave correctly. Um, so that's one thing I've, I've observed about callbacks in JavaScript um, with all their warts, like I never got to that place with threads where I had that kind of confidence. And even when I do promises, which I, which I have done a lot lately, but they're, they're not my main thing, I, I don't have that same confidence. I'm always a little bit worried, like, oh, there might be a subtle bug in here. And it's, I find them harder to, to reason about just from sc uh, scanning the code perspective. Yeah, it's not just you and me. I used to work at high frequency trading, and yeah, we uh, we would occasionally have little race conditions where it would take like a team of PhDs the order of days to find the uh, to find the race condition. So some so yeah, threads, lots and lots of subtle insidious bugs where just like oh, this one little block of memory isn't quite locked the way that it should. Gets a. Uh, Really, really, just gets to be hairy, and I don't envy people that write uh, that have to write backends in Java. <laughs> yeah, and I find a lot of people, you know, it's tricky to understand. And then, so if you have a partial understanding, what I, the pattern I I saw was um, people just start putting the synchronous keyword there in Java just in case because it doesn't usually cause your program to break, um, although it may destroy your concurrent your performance benefits of, of doing your concurrency and may kind of kill your concurrency, but that's really hard to prove um, in testing. So yeah, I remember very vividly, it, there's, a, there's a file, you know, if you have a long career in programming, I'm, I'm getting, getting to be an, an older statesman here, but uh, over a 15 year career, there's a few file names, actual file names from projects that you remember. And I mean, I have whole jobs where I worked seven months and I literally forgot the entire job. I, I look at my resume, I'm like, I, I can't even remember that I ever worked at that company. But I, I can remember a file called udplistener.java, you know, that I worked with 15, 12 years ago or something that was another of my colleagues' very first attempt at writing an, a UDP network server in Java 
and it was just full of loops and the synchronous keyword all over the place. And uh, me trying to maintain that, having not written it, was really, really tough. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Uh, I think that we can get into the same thing with JavaScript, though. Like, uh, I've definitely dealt with race conditions and like spent hours and hours on that kind of thing. So maybe this is a good way to segue into some of the solutions around um, asynchronous programming because we we can say that it's easier than threads or more straightforward or or you have more control and so that's nice. And and I agree. I I really really struggled with uh, threads and concurrency in in the short time that I used Java. Um, but there are challenges with uh, asynchronous uh, programming in JavaScript. So I think the like the earliest form or of uh, as far as patterns go for asynchronous programming in JavaScript is the callback, where you have like the pyramid of doom, the uh, the triangle. Um, when when you have multiple callbacks into callbacks, can we talk about that uh, pyramid a little bit? That like that kind of is one of the the root problems that uh, has spawned lots of the um, other solutions around asynchronous programming, I think. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the classic, uh, most straightforward way to write it. And then you end up in the pyramid of doom. Um, I, I find the solution pretty straightforward. Um, there's a great site called callbackhell.com that I think Max Ogden originally uh, created most of that content. But it just gives you some easy patterns to get out of that pyramid of doom. But in my mind, the answer is really, um, don't use so many closures. So take all your nested functions and make them top-level functions um, that that just do one or two asynchronous operations. Um, give them a name and then write the what I call glue code that coordinates how those things execute. What is serial? What is parallel? How the values have to waterfall across stuff, um, and keep that glue code separate from all of the actual code that's doing the work. Um, so it ends up you have a lot of named functions at the left of your file that are easy to test that only do one or two things that don't have a pyramid of doom. And then you've got your one sort of main worker function that coordinates the interaction between them. And I think both of those things make each of those bits of code easier to read. Um, even when you're, when you're looking at the glue code, because those are just the names of functions, they're not the actual bodies, it's easier to see how they're being uh, tied together and threaded together. And then when you're looking at the actual bodies of, of each of the pieces of work, it's like, okay, this thing queries the database for this thing. And if it finds it, it does this. And if it doesn't find it, it does that. And then that's the end of that function. Um, so that, that's yeah, my take great. on uh, callback health. Great point, Peter. I, I wrote a similar article to pretty much like exactly what you were saying. That's uh, still ends up being one of the biggest sources of hits to my blog entitled Callback Hell is a Myth. Um, clickbait title, definitely. But my point was very much similar to what you uh, what you made there, where um, generally like examples of like really bad callback hell tend to have just one giant monolithic function that does everything. One of the examples that, that I went through in the blog post basically did something like, okay, you know, collect. Uh, connect to Elastic Beanstalk, put the job, uh, put put this code into Elastic Beanstalk or whatever that Amazon thing is. Um, do like a bunch of file system operations, clean up everything, pop the job off. Just like your function is doing too much. It's not necessarily the callback hell. It's just not building up abstractions. Um, but what Pyramid of Doom really gets, or where I would always find problems with callback hell, is what happens. 
but then back about like four or five levels down and your entire process crashes. So that's kind of where in my mind things like promises and co kind of come in is they uh, they really help you with that with that error handling and making sure that you know like some, uh, if you have a callback like three levels deep you could have a common way of handling errors in that callback great i'm glad that you brought up uh um promises and, and co uh val i think uh we we only have like about 15 minutes left in the show and i think that it would be great for us to talk about the various different styles or uh, or, or patterns so maybe um, we can just list a couple of the names of those things and then try and cover as many of those as possible uh, during uh, the remaining time that we have. So we've already talked about callbacks that, that, and, and we talked about events. Um, I think those, and events actually just really use callbacks unless you're using some sort of abstraction. Um, and so um, the, I think those are kind of the fundam fundamental uh, concepts around uh, um, asynchronous programming. And so then there are libraries, abstractions, patterns built around um, this like fundamental concept uh, that make uh, reading that code a little easier to do um, and and programming it as well. Um, so can we talk about um, I like we've we've got a Google Doc in here, and I think I'm not sure which of you uh, put these in here, but here are some of the major paradigms that we have in the Google Doc, and we can talk about some of these um, in the rest of our chat. So there's streams and promises and generators or coroutines, um, async await observables um, with like RxJS. Um, and then there's like some other things that I totally don't understand, like fibers. Um, and I, I'm not even sure what these things are, but zones, iced, coffee script. So yeah, lots, lots of different uh, um, uh, like uh, patterns there. What are some of the things that you all see most commonly and, and you find most useful? Um, so at Booster, we're very much or we use basically promises, uh, coroutines, and uh, an RxJS at least on the back end. Um, are uh, not entirely sure off the top of my head what we do on the front end, but we also use coroutines and promises up there. Um, Fibers is actually not technically an async framework because what Fibers does is it actually makes uh, network calls entirely synchronous. So it's kind of like the opposite of a of an async framework. The whole point is it goes into node, it sort of monkey patches the uh, the code that makes network calls async, and, uh, and basically just you know, makes it uh, makes it fully synchronous, which wow. is which is useful sometimes. It's good for like writing like little shell tools in um, in node that do async operations, but it's uh, but yeah, it has its own quirks as well. Bob, well, um, do you know if uh, Meteor is still using that? I actually did not. I haven't looked at Meteor in a couple of years, so it's it's been a while. But yeah, not entirely sure. Okay, my understanding of the history of this, and I I kind of I, I find it interesting to follow the history of this stuff um, as best I can. But I, I think Meteor was the one of the early projects that um, used this fibers technique for dealing with async code in Node. Um, and as far as I know, it's the only big project that has done so. I'm not sure if they're still using it, but it seems to me like a pretty clearly um, uh, an option that's probably not going to go mainstream and is probably on, on the way out. And just, just for interesting historical background, Zones is a, another attempt to, to solve this in a different way that I think, uh, I think it was primarily developed by uh, Bert Belder from uh, Loopback and, and Strong Loop. He's one of the Node core contributors. Um, 
And then iced coffee strip. Right now, I really. Oh, I just want to say that like now Angular 2 is really trying to take on zones as like a fundamental thing from last I heard. Um, oh, from what I understand, zones tend are like um, an attempt to make Node.js domains into just sort of a generic thing that you can use in all, uh, in all JavaScript environments. Um, not entirely sure that's a good idea because domains were, uh, were extremely buggy and uh, not very useful in my mind. Um, but maybe zones are better. I haven't really tried. Yeah, and then uh, again, just for historical reference, I think there was something called Iced Coffee Script, which was a dialect of uh, coffee script that had the async and await uh, keywords, um, which we now are getting into the actual JavaScript itself. But it was this idea that you could write synchronous style, you know, top top to bottom code using these extra keywords that they added, and they would do a bunch of transpilation to. Um, take that coffee script and generate uh, the, the correct JavaScript accord, according to it. Um, but at the, at the early days of Node, there was a sort of um, explosion of people trying to solve this problem in different ways. Um, but I think now the promises are in the language and async and await is, uh, are in the language. Um, now we have a bunch of stuff that is pretty clearly like, okay, this has been standardized. Um, and so it seems like there's a lot of stuff that's now in, in the toolbox that's fairly safe to, to build upon. Now, yeah, is, uh, is async await actually formally in the language? Last, I, I haven't really checked too much, but last I checked, it was still stage three in TC39, which, uh, which means it's probably going to be in. But on the other hand, I spent a hefty chunk of time about this time last year working on a project that used object.observe. And well, we know what happened with that stage three TC39. Yeah, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head uh, exactly how far along it is. I, I think you're right that it's not, uh, I don't think it was officially in ES 2015, and I, um, and I don't think ES 2016 either. Um, yeah, it was definitely not in either of those. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if ES 2017 oh, has been finalized. I, I'm looking at it right now, and it is in the finished proposals. It's expected to be shipped uh, in 2017. Okay. Um, awesome. So you should be able to safely use it. Um, <laughs> And uh, and also one of my other favorites, trailing commas and function parameter lists and calls. I like my comma dangle for my Git stuff. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, let's let's actually talk about uh, async await for a little bit. So um, to really understand async await, I think um, it is helpful to understand promises, and uh, maybe in some places where promises promises don't like completely solve the readability problem of uh, asynchronous uh, programming. So um, yeah, like maybe we should talk about a little bit about how promises work and then how async and await um, work to kind of um, make that code a little easier to read. So promise is basically an object-oriented wrapper around a value that will be computed in the future. Um, the core defining property of what is a promise is it has a dot then function which basically says, okay, once this async operation is done, execute this uh, this function with the result if there was one, or execute this function if there was an error and pass in the error as a parameter. Um, nice neat thing about the dot then function is if uh, if any of the functions that you pass into dot then return a promise, you can uh, you can basically chain dot thens on top of that. 
so you can have kind of a very flat structure where you have you know nested callbacks just instead of returns a promise and then back at the top level you just chain a dot then on top of it the nice neat thing is also there's a dot catch function which is uh, which is kind of just a helper around uh, around dot then with just an error callback um, and that basically lets you catch like errors from any of the promises in your chain, which makes promises very neat. But the uh, but the limitations come in with things like uh, so ES6 has ameliorated this to some extent, but with things like looping and retrying things like that are not quite as easy with promises. Um, Promise.all can help you with that, which is a top level ES6 function that basically says you know execute all these promises in parallel, give me the results as an array. Um, but that still doesn't help you with things like, you know, oh, if this attempt, uh, if this request fails, let me retry it after X number of seconds. That's something that's pretty tricky to do with promises right now. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. Um, for all these different paradigms, I think there's a handful of, of use cases and code patterns that they really shine in that are sort of the, the happy path for them. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that they consider to be edge cases and become either impossible or extremely difficult to do correctly. You know, so for, for any one of these patterns, you know, and the, some of the things you mentioned, like, oh, I want to retry this thing. I want to cancel something while it's in flight. I want to have a control over timeouts. Um, many of these patterns have those kind of more sophisticated uh, behaviors are just really hard to do. Um, and and uh, it, it's interesting to see sometimes people find that a problem and that's where we get a new a new paradigm. Um, you know, right now promises uh, are, are not currently cancelable and people are figuring out, well, how do we make how do we make these so you can start one and then cancel it before it's done? Um, yeah, actually and, so on, on that note of canceling, um, there is a proposal right now, it's stage one, so it's like using your own risk here, but um, there is a, a proposal for cancelable promises because like, actually let's talk about why would you want to cancel a, a promise or an asynchronous uh, scenario. Uh, like one example I can think of and, and that I had to implement and it was a real pain was um, like an autocomplete um, field like or, or a search field or something like that. Somebody's typing stuff in I wait like 300 milliseconds after the last character was typed, and then I fire off a request. And then they type another character. Um, then I'm going to fire off another request, but I want to cancel the previous one. And uh, just because of the way that, uh, like, how difficult, uh, well, technically impossible um, it is to cancel a promise right now, when that second request or when that first request comes back, I'd have to check, okay, was this the most recent request that I sent? If it's not, then I have to ignore it. And so all of that logic that I had to do. Uh, would be a lot easier if I could just cancel uh, promises, uh, which is part of the reason why um, there's a, a like a proposal out for that right now. Um, but this isn't a problem with some of the other uh, async pattern library abstraction solutions out there. Um, the the one that comes to my mind is um, uh, RxJS or or observables, um, for which there's also a proposal. I believe anybody want to talk about observables? <laughs> Oh, well, so an observable is kind of loosely similar to a Node.js stream. The general idea is you just have this thing that spits out events that you can then filter, map, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it also, 
the thing about observables though is they try to glue like a lot of concurrency things under one umbrella. So you can actually also do things like HTTP requests with them with observables. The way that you cancel an observable is you unsubscribe from it. So if you have a, uh, an observable that represents an HTTP request, let's say, um, the observable basically spits out like bit by bit uh, data that it gets back from the server as it gets it. But once you unsubscribe, technically the uh, the observable is no longer uh, is no longer going to be receiving the uh, is no longer going to receive any data. So that's kind of how cancellation works when you think about um, uh, HTTP requests using observables. But to be honest, I have never actually used the observables for HTTP or database requests. Um, I've found them useful for other applications, which we could talk about if, uh, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so the way that we actually use Rx on the back end at Booster is um, we basically have like a set of uh, library calls that are basically just like represent our core business logic, like creating a new request or, uh, or updating an existing customer's profile or something like that. And we have an Rx wrapper around all of these things. So we can basically pipe in and say like, okay, every time a customer does anything, we want to log it here. And Rx makes it very easy to do that, just because every time one of these uh, every time one of these events finishes, we base it. Uh, our system basically shoves that out into an RxJS stream that says like, okay, the model name is customer, the function name is this, or is like you know update or whatever. And we can and we have the ability to just like filter through that stream and do whatever we want. So things like you know uh, fraud detection, Slack notifications, um, logging, debugging, just printing debug messages, all of that goes through RX. Cool. Um, actually, one thing that I think would be valuable for us to talk about um, with each of these uh, like paradigms, abstractions, whatever we want to call them. Um, is in like what cases are these not suited for? Uh, like, in what situation would I not use um, observables? I know that the the mantra is everything is a stream, um, but is everything really a stream? Like, um, are are there situations where observables aren't really a good fit? If nope, you're not no. comfortable with observables, <laughs> is the obvious one. Uh, observables are. Because they try to fit a lot of things under one umbrella, they're very confusing. And it becomes more difficult to kind of think about what's going on with an observable. Sometimes it's easier to just say, like, okay, you know, it's it's a promise. If it uh, if it fails, I'll, you know, retry it. And if um and if I need to cancel it, well, I don't need to cancel it. So Yeah. Um I, I have yet to jump into the observables thing. Um, I, it sounds really cool, but I just I'm not sure that I um, have found a use case for it, or I, I just don't know. Maybe I'm missing out big time. Um, what are what are some scenarios where uh, we kind of talked about uh, where promises fall over a little bit? Um, but uh, yeah, actually, let's let's just we never really got into async await. Um, can we talk about why async await is a thing? Like why are promises not good enough? Um, and why why did we create this async await thing? And, and maybe how does it work a little bit? I think it all just comes down to being able to use like for loops, while loops, and try catch to basically handle uh, to handle async code. I think like um, async await and its kind of predecessor co and yield are um, 
what they uh, what they let you do is basically um, pretend that async operations are synchronous like so you can uh, so you can as long as you put await something you can wrap that in a for loop you can put it in a try catch block to catch any errors it makes uh, like a lot easier because you're writing async code and it is actually fully asynchronous. It doesn't block the CPU or anything, but it looks like synchronous code and you can use the same old for loops, return statements, try catch blocks that you're used to from Java, but actually get the benefits of the async code. Yeah, it seems pretty cool. I wasn't actually totally sold on async await when um, my coworker decided we should try it out in our, our code base. And so I was like, all right, let's try it out. We'll see. Um, and I like it took me a while to warm up to it, but just the other day I was working on something, um, and I was like, okay, I, I want to make uh, this API asynchronous. I, I want to enable like uh, callback or whatever, and uh, so making that API asynchronous with just raw promises would have required a pretty significant refactor. Um, but using async await was just like. I was really shocked. I just like, OK, this function is async, so just put the async keyword there and then put await in front of this other thing um, that uh, is going to like return a value later, uh, returns a promise ultimately. And like I was done. And I didn't have to do any any weird like reformatting or refactoring at all. It was I was really impressed. And that's when I was sold, OK, yeah. There are some times where async await is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me is this. Uh... Is, is how the stack trace plays all, all into this. I feel like there's a big part of that JavaScript language that is asynchronous first, you know, and um, and when you have an event loop, it turns out that the stack trace is not that useful because the event loop constantly starts new, small, very small, shallow stack traces, and there's there's no mechanism to link from. Uh, you know, where, uh, when an exception occurs on one tick of the event loop, they don't normally know that on some previous tick, that was the actual cause of why the code got into a bad state. Um, but that, but JavaScript does have try catch and it does have stack traces. And so when you write synchronous code and you get an exception, you have a stack trace, which is sort of uh, an error handling or a debugging mechanism that's built into so many languages. And it, it's quite useful. Um, and then once you start doing asynchronous code, you sort of it sort of gets taken away from you, and you have to use different tools um, to debug things. And then with async and await, try catch tries to um, you know tries to stitch things back together, even though the code has has become asynchronous and has done asynchronous operations, and there have been different ticks of the event loops with different stacks. They can try to weave those back together into what they call a long stack trace that says like. Oh, on you know tick 17, you made this database call, and then on tick 42, it came back with an error, and then the code that was supposed to deal with that error had a bug, and it caused a type error and raised an exception, and here's your long stack trace. Yeah, definitely. Um, but in my mind, stack trace. Oh. Uh, I, I mean, stack just in my mind, absolutely. like oh. JavaScript has this. It, it's not clear on like, uh, do we like stack traces? Are these good, or do we like event loops? Are these good? And like, I don't feel like we found a way to sort of have our cake and eat it too. Sorry, go ahead, Val. Yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite features of async await is the is the stack trace. Um, I guess right now with uh, with ES6 or ES2016, I guess right now you can do most of what async await does using uh, using a library like Co and the yield keyword and generators. Um, but what you don't get is the stack trace. 
So the you get the similar benefits of being able to do for loops and try catches and while loops over, and use return statements in async code, but you don't get the uh, you don't get the stack trace benefits. You still just get okay, you know, process that next tick as you uh, at the top of your stack trace. Limiting sometimes and it makes it confusing to debug, but uh, for the most part, I've been able to work around that. Um, there's also libraries like um, the npm module long john actually lets you uh, actually like sort of monkey patches things to give you long stack traces pretty easily in Node. Yeah, love our monkey patching in JavaScript. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that and fibers, right? Um, so yeah, uh, I, and sorry, I I was just joking. Um, I'm sure long john is terrific. Um, <laughs> So um, we didn't. We just have a couple minutes left in our show, and we didn't even talk about generators. We should probably bring those up. Um, they're like some people really, really love them. Um, other people really, really don't, and many people really have no idea what they are, how they work. Um, does anybody want to take a, a stab at uh, explaining what generators are and where they're valuable? Yes, please. I just wrote a book on it, so I have a lot of things to say about that. But no, so uh, so the way that actually. Last I checked, the way that uh, Babel and Tracers um, transpilers for async await work, they actually compile down into generators. Um, because what a generator fundamentally is, is a function that allows re-entry. So normally when you return from a function, it's done, that function is gone, it's lost all of its state, everything is finished. Um, with a generator, you have a yield keyword, which lets you say, okay, uh, return partially return this value, but retain the state of the function as long as, uh, as long as a reference to the function is still living. And then you could call dot next on the reference to the function to resume execution whenever you want. It can resume execution asynchronously, which is why, uh, which is how libraries like Co work. Fundamentally, uh, you basically yield an asynchronous primitive, like say a promise or a thunk, which is uh, you know, a function that takes a single parameter. And then, uh, then a library like Co or Spawn or Vo or whichever you prefer um, does basically waits for that operation to resolve and then calls next on the function to resume execution at a at a later tick. But the but the actual business logic within the uh, within the generator function is entirely flat. It's try catches. It's for loops. It's all of those nice little uh, nice little primitives that you learn when you're uh, when you're beginning JavaScript. Cool. Yeah, that, I think that sums it up. So, what what are some scenarios where you would use the generator over async await? So we like to use it just for like uh, the backend business logic and just you know sequences of HTTP requests or database calls. Um, where it really doesn't work well is, uh, is streams of events like um, like button presses or things like that for on the front end. Um, usually on the front end, you uh, you kind of want to use something like Rx or uh, or Mob or Redux that is more geared towards that. Um, I think like generators and async await are just really geared towards just uh, functions that kind of execute once, but and terminate after a while, as opposed to something that does like a while true, effectively like waiting for button presses to come in. Um, it is technically possible. I actually wrote a blog post about how you can uh, how you can handle like a Node.js stream in uh, in Co or effectively using async await. Um, it's pretty gnarly, and it uses the uh, the promise.race function, um, but it's uh, it's technically doable. 
it just looks really ugly and feels very uh it feels very like java -y because you have like a wild true loop and you have a yield on promise.race to see what uh to see what event comes in first which is a little bit messy could you explain promise.race for those who don't know that race um, is kind of like promise.all. It executes all a bunch of promises in parallel and returns the first promise to resolve or the first error that occurred. So, uh, so yeah, gives you a promise that resolves to the first promise that resolved in the array. Perfect. Cool, cool. Well, that's that's all the time that we have. Um, we didn't get any questions on Twitter, so we um, had a little bit more extra time. If anybody does have questions, we'll go through our tips and picks, and I'll keep Twitter open. Uh, so with the hashtag JSAirQuestion, uh, you can ask questions about async patterns or why JavaScript error is over, um, whatever you want. OK, great. So we'll go into our, our tips and picks. I'll go ahead and start. Um, I have uh, three picks. First is Yarn. It's a new package manager uh, client, um, not a new registry or anything, still using the NPM registry and everything. NPM is totally in love with Yarn. It's all great. We're all happy. Uh, no forking of the community. Uh, but Yarn is an, a really impressive package manager uh, from some really impressive people. So check it out. Um, that uh, link will be in the show notes. And then REPL.it. I think I may have picked this before, but it's a really impressive site um, that uh, actually one of our uh, past guests is, uh, is the CEO of, I think. Um, but it basically gives you a REPL in the browser for a bunch of different environments, uh, JavaScript, Python, um, like. Ruby, a whole bunch. Um, and it's it's a great teaching tool. So check that out. Um, and then something relevant to today's show is uh, from Getify, uh, Kyle Simpson. It's called A Tale of Three Lists that um, implements a bunch of different async, uh, or implements the same thing in a bunch of different async pan patterns. So you check that out. Um, and then, yeah, just a, a tip, a general tip I'd give is um, like make, make the choices that you want to make. Um, like do the things that you think are the right thing to do, um, and and don't um, worry about what people are going to say about you or what like what other people think. Um, like if you think that it's the right thing to do and and that's what you want to do, then do it. Um, it's part of the reason why I decided it's okay for me to to stop JavaScript there. Um, as as much as I love to please people and I I want uh, to be a, a use in the community, um, they're just like. I, I didn't think that it was the right thing for me, and it wasn't something that I wanted to do to continue doing it. Like I said, maybe I'll come back and do it um, in the future. So anyway, that is my tips and picks. Uh, Peter, why don't we have you do yours? Sure. So uh, my first tip is uh, seeking out mentors and peers. Um, so make sure you have some peers uh, in, your, in your career that are at sort of similar place to you are that you can bounce ideas off of, and then also mentors who are maybe um, at a place that you're trying to get to. And this is for, it doesn't matter what your experience level is. So, you know, I've been a professional programmer for 16 or 17 years now. And as soon as we're done with this call, I'm meeting with my mentor to review my goals for next year and try to, you know, learn, learn from, learn from him and, and, uh, and get his advice. So um, do that. It doesn't matter. There, it's not just for beginners. Um, second tip is um, try to cultivate a self-awareness or when the tools that you're using are, are either not visual enough or not fast enough. I think in programming, it's a lot of write some text in a file, 
the machine disappears for a while and then you get some result that may or may not be expected. And um, if you're doing front-end browser development, you have some decent tools to, to debug and see trends, but a lot of times um, just the tools you have don't show you the time aspect the timed um, aspect that you need to see or the right data in a convenient format. Um, so as soon as you get that sense, start writing a script, start writing a, a little web UI, some kind of dashboard, something that will give you the right information without too much noise with the right amount of signal and it'll do it fast. Um, and that's one of these like level up. This is one of, this is how you'll, your productivity can, can um, sort of make a leap and bound is like, you spent half a day or a day or two days writing a, writing a tool, and then for the rest of the six months, that tool is like a superpower for you um, to do that. So those are my two tips. Um, are we doing picks at the same time as tips? Yep. Okay, so I have two tips, or picks, sorry. The first one is a site called regex101. It's uh, regex101.com. If you're doing regular expressions, it's a, it's a fantastic tool to learn and develop and test. Um, and it's one of these things that gives you immediate visual feedback with really rich in information um, and trying to do regex development by changing some code and running a script and looking at the output is really slow. Um, but putting a bunch of stuff into regex101.com, you'll get the correct regex really fast and you'll just see how it, how it fails and how it works. Uh, so that's my first pick. And my second one is, um, the blog of Julia Evans, which is uh, jbns.ca. Um, she is uh, at Bork on Twitter, uh, that's B0RK. And she has a fantastic blog where she goes into systems programming and a lot of deep topics like networking and containers and the Linux kernel and system calls. And she just has a great style that's um, you know, very inspiring to, to show that you can dive into really, really deep topics um, and, and you can learn them. Um, and uh, and just great writing style and, and great technical information. So those are my uh, those are my picks. And then my my random pick is uh, the sport of bouldering, which is a flavor of rock climbing. And I've seen in my Twitter feed, you know, it's mostly other developers, and I've seen more and more people getting into it. I think it's a it's a sport that uh, um, a lot of a lot of developer types can enjoy because it has a sort of puzzle solving aspect to it. Um, but it's a great way to to do a physical activity, um, and it's really fun. So if you haven't tried it, and there's a there's a nearby gym, go and go and try it. Um, you can usually get a day pass for pretty cheap, and uh, that's how I spend my that's what I do for my uh, physical activity these days. Awesome, thank you, Val. Cool. Uh, so my tips. First one uh, lines up kind of with what Kent said earlier is um, is just kind of think things through for yourself and do things that make sense for you. Again, just because like some uh, some expert on Reddit says that you should be using observables, racing await or co and yield, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right fit for you or in your team. Just kind of sit down and figure out what you uh, what you're willing to invest in and what really solves problems for you. Um, number two. Uh, I really encourage everyone to kind of write about their uh, write about things they learn and write about like stuff that they're working on. Either like you know give a talk to your team, write a put up write up in Slack, or even write a write a blog post. There's always like the best way to like solidify your learnings about something is to uh, try to teach somebody else, even if they don't listen. <laughs> and um, a couple of recommendations. Uh, 
if you're if you're interested in learning more about like uh, generators or promises, and promises are very important because they underlie both coroutines and async await, so you should probably be very familiar with them. Um, there's uh, PonyFoo has a great series called ES6 in depth. Just PonyFoo.com. Look for ES6 in depth. You'll you'll be able to find it. Or, or can put it really great detailed guide to thing ES6 concepts like generators, arrow functions, and promises, which are just very fundamental part of how we write JavaScript these days. And random pick, I just got myself back into Bulletproof Coffee a couple of weeks ago, and man, uh, productivity through the roof, workouts through the roof, highly, uh, highly recommended. So uh, check that out if you haven't. All right, great. OK, so uh, that's our show. Let's uh, just close up with a couple closing announcements. Um, just want to give a shout out to our silver sponsors that we're so grateful for, React.js program. Uh, they help you master React and React Native. Find them at jsair.io slash react.js-program. And thanks to Hired.com, they, jo they bring job offers to you, which is like the coolest catchphrase ever. Uh, find them at jsair.io slash Hired. And uh, yeah, I've actually heard really good things about them. I've never used them before, but um, heard good things. So check them out. Uh, and then a couple more uh, links for you. Um, I was actually just about to say jsair.io slash suggest, but since the show is wrapping up and we have all of the shows planned out, this is kind of sad. Um, I'm not going to recommend you do that. Uh, you will be disappointed. Um, but I still am interested in your feedback. And if you just want to say thanks for the show, uh, jsair.io slash feedback is a great place to do that. Um, and then jsair.io slash email to look at our past newsletters. Um, we do still have a couple more issues coming out. So um, yeah, check that out there. Um, and then again, we have a show next week. Um, it's going to be on site and live at uh, ConnectJS. Um, it's not going to be on like same time, same place. It is actually going to be at uh, 12 p.m. or 12.30 p.m. Eastern time on Friday on the 21st. So. Be prepared for that. And uh, with that, I uh, think that we're all done. So thanks, um, both Peter and Val, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, yeah, Ken. Thanks for having me on. It was great to be here. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the rest of your projects, Ken. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye.